Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. How many of y'all have been watching the Bible miniseries? I'm just curious, show of hands. Wow, that's okay, that's a good number. Uh, over the last several weeks here at our church, we've been saying, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's see what's happening on Sunday nights in the Bible miniseries, and then let's just talk about that. Let's talk about this most powerful story that has ever been told. Do y'all, do y'all have any storytellers in y'all's families? Do y'all have that person that always tells a story and uh, that no matter how many times you hear that story, it's still funny, it's still intriguing? Well, this is the most powerful story. A lot of times we think about our lives as being our lives. This is my story. This is my life. This is my thing. But really, we're just part of God's story. We're part of this larger story. And I've just enjoyed it. I've enjoyed seeing the bigger picture of what God is doing through the scope of Scripture. Now, Pastor Chuck said it last week. The, the miniseries is not the same thing as the Bible, right? It's not inspired by God. It's, it's Hollywood saying, how can we take the scope of scripture and tell a good chunk of it in 10 hours over five weeks. And so obviously the the show isn't perfect, but man, it's been so helpful for me. I don't know if it has been for you, but just to have my Bible open and watch. And one of the stories that we get to this week in the series is this story about Jesus coming into the temple and turning over the tables. And if I'd be honest with you, there are some parts of the Bible that caused me to scratch my head. There are some parts of the Bible. Actually, there, there's lots of parts of the Bible that when you look at it, you're like, really, what's going on? I mean, why in this passage, why is Jesus so ticked off? I mean, why is Jesus so angry? How come that a lot of times when Jesus went to church of their day, how come it seemed like he got into arguments with people? What, what's going on? What's the deal with that? Why, why did that happen? And what I think is interesting in this, this clip sort of merged a couple of accounts of this coming down, but really where we're at is that today is what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday has been celebrated. It's been observed by churches as a whole for about 2000 years now. It's been a historic day because this is the day roughly 2,000 years ago that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, uh, and in fact, if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to follow along. But we're in Luke chapter 19. And Jesus rides in, the, in Luke chapter 19. Jesus rides in, we call this the triumphal entry because this is Jesus riding in on a donkey as we saw in the video. And he's riding into Jerusalem, the religious center of their day. I mean, Jerusalem's where it happened. If you wanted to be near God, if you wanted to be near the the spiritual uh, atmosphere, you'd go to Jerusalem, you'd try to go to the temple. And the closer you got to that building and that city, then it's almost like you were coming closer and closer to God. And so uh, this day in history is when Jesus rode into that city and it starts the final week of his life. Now, this is a powerful week. Uh, the Jews had several festivals or they had several um, celebrations that they kept. And one of them is the Passover. And so once a year, they'd have this special meal together. And through that meal, it wasn't just, hey, we're going to hang out. But every part of that meal told the story of how God rescued them from Egypt and brought them into a new life. 
And so this is Jesus in Luke 19. Jesus is entering into the city. And here's what I find fascinating is that there goes what we see in this final week of Jesus' life is people go from, from worshiping him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest to just a few days later shouting out, crucify him. And what I find interesting is that in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus walks into the city, everything changes. If you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 28. It says, and after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. We saw that depicted. He's going up to Jerusalem. He gives his disciples some instructions on how this is going to happen. And he fulfills Old Testament prophecy in doing this. But listen to what happens in verse 38. And they were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And listen to the response. So here's Jesus, the long awaited Messiah. Here's Jesus, the one, the savior of the world. He's coming into the city. People are worshiping him. And it says in the very next verse, look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees, now Pharisees are religious leaders of their day. Pharisees are insiders in God world, so to speak. They're, they're, they're part of the temple staff, so to speak. They, they're religious leaders of their day. And they've been learning the Old Testament. They've been combing the Old Testament. They, they, they've been waiting for the Messiah. And here comes the Messiah. And so instead of them joining in by saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, instead of saying, finally, salvation has come, here's what they say in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're troubled by it. They're like, here comes this guy. Here comes Jesus. And instead of putting their faith in him, instead of seeing him for who he is, they get ticked off. They get angry. They're like, Jesus, quiet them down. Jesus, tell them not to do it. And I love Jesus' response in verse 40. He says in verse 40, I tell you, if these, if these people, these people that are crying out, if they become silent, even the stones will cry out. Why did Jesus go head to head so often with the Pharisees? Why is it that when Jesus was around religious people, arguments broke out? Here's what I think the simple answer is. Is because the religious people were all about rules and not about a relationship. I mean, if you were to boil it all down, there's a lot going on in this passage. There's no way we could unravel all of it this morning. But at the center of the problem is Jesus came head to head with people that were all about rules. They're all about code. They were all about doing things just a certain way. And here's what we learn about Jesus. And this is good news for us is that Jesus didn't come to give us rules. Jesus didn't come, as he describes it in the Gospels, to place this heavy burden on our shoulders, but Jesus really came for a relationship. He came for a relationship. Now, if you're like me and you've been around church for a while, I, I know some of you, maybe this is your first time to be here, and I echo what Reuben said earlier. We're just grateful you're here. But I know that a lot, uh, uh, and, and I, I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll be with us Sunday. In fact, all week long, we've got 
just touch points throughout the week to say, let's focus our heads and our hearts on Jesus this week. On Thursday night at seven, we're meeting in the chapel for what's called a Monday Thursday service. And what that is, is that on Thursday of this week that we're studying about uh, in Jesus's life, Thursday night, he had this Passover meal with his disciples. He had this, this very uh, specific very meaningful meal with his disciples before he was betrayed. And so on Thursday night, we're going to gather at seven in the chapel for a somber, focused time to say, let's think about the, the, the betrayal that Jesus experienced. And then on Friday night, we're going to gather in this room at seven o'clock. And as we gather in here, that's what we call Good Friday. So in Jesus's life of, the, of this week, Friday night is when he went to the cross. And so we're going to gather in here and think about the wait, weightiness of that night. And then obviously next Sunday, we're going to be gathering together, ready to celebrate that Jesus beat death. And so I hope you'll be here. I hope you'll bring your friends, your neighbors, your family. We're going to have services in the chapel at 930 and 11 next week. And we're going to have services in here at 930 and 11. It's going to be amazing. But here's what I want to talk about this morning. Is that if this really isn't about rules... Because maybe you're like me, you, you've heard it in churches before that Jesus came for relationship, not rules, relationship, not religion. Inside of me that I'm like, but what does that mean? Well, what I want to do is in Luke 19, as Jesus walks into the city, I want to use that as a springboard to say, what happens when Jesus walks into my life? What happens when Jesus walks into your life? So if you're a believer, this will be a reminder. This will say, hey, this is what happened at the moment you put your trust in him. These are the things that are true. But maybe today, just maybe there's never been a moment like that for you. Maybe this is about rules to you and you don't really get the relationship part. And my prayer is today that you'll see that Jesus doesn't want to just give you rules. He wants to literally change your life. Because just like in Luke 19, when Jesus walked in the city, the city changed. I firmly believe, and what we believe here at Sugar Hill Church, is that when Jesus enters anybody's heart, he brings change. And there's three areas. There's a lot of ways I could talk about it, but let me give you three areas. If you have the little handout you got on your way in, I'll invite you to jot these down so that you can sit with these this week. Maybe you can teach them across the coffee table this week to, to a friend or a loved one, a coworker. But anytime Jesus steps into a life, that life changes. That life changes. If you know Christ, your life has changed. If you don't know Christ yet and you're asking, what does knowing Christ do for me? I'm telling you, he changes your life in at least three ways. And the first one is number one, he gives you, he, he, he gives us total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. You might say, well, forgiveness for what? I mean, what, what, what does that mean? In church, we talk a whole lot about forgiveness because here's the premise is that we need it. That's the nutshell. <laughs> Every one of us needs it. The story of Scripture, and that's why I've loved this miniseries, is it starts with God creating the world. Now, God's always existed, but we, we get our part of the story where we step into the scene. In the book of Genesis, God speaks everything to, into existence. He creates man and woman, and he gives them this opportunity to choose to love him or honestly to choose to disobey him. And as you know, or as you probably know, in Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 3, we begin to see what happens when Adam and Eve willingly choose to disobey God. That's where sin enters into the world. We call that original sin. That is the first sin. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if there is some debate in the garden where God, where God's like, "Hey, why did y'all sin?" And Adam's like, "Well, you made her, and she tempted me, right?" I don't know. 
That's probably the first marital counseling that needed to happen. You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. And so, so sin enters into the world. And from that moment on, we're all born into the world as sinners. As sinners. Right? And even if Adam and Eve's sin wasn't enough, I sin enough on my own. <laughs> I don't know about you. I just know me. I, I'm one of those people that Reuben could have been talking about this morning where I got up at 5.30, 5.45, and I'm in, in my office to spend some time praying at, at six something, and my house starts shaking because of the thunderstorm <laughs> going on. And I'm thinking, awesome, right? I mean, I, I wasn't like, praise the Lord, great. My uh, umbrella is missing, right? I didn't say, you know, I, so I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. So if Adam and Eve's sin wasn't enough, I've got my own sin. I don't know if you are with me on that. I've got my own sin. I need forgiveness. Well, as Jesus walks into the city, he goes to the temple. And one of the groups of people that we learn about in the Gospels is, is these people called the Sadducees. They're religious leaders of the day. They're in charge of the temple. They run the daily functions of the temple. In fact, one of their own uh, served as the high priest. The high priest is the one person that could go to where God's presence was represented, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies of the temple one time a year. And so that, that's a whole lot to say these people were set apart. And so the high priest would offer the sacrifice one time a year. This high priest dates all the way back to Moses's brother Aaron. So I'm telling you, it's a big deal to be a Sadducee. Well, the problem is Jesus walks into this temple that really does represent the presence of God. It's got an outer court, an inner court, the Holy of Holies. That outer court, a lot of times was called the court of the Gentiles. In other words, it was a place for outsiders to be able to come. And before we, before we came to know Christ, before we put our trust in him, we're all outsiders. We're all on equal playing field. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church. None of that stuff matters that all of us are born sinners, separated from God. So, uh, automatically we're all outsiders. And so here's this temple setup that's designed to reach people, right? It's, it's designed to help people connect with God. And yet what had happened instead of these Sadducees helping outsiders connect with God, the ultimate insider, they had turned their temple instead of a place of worship, they turned it into a place to rip people off and make money. And Jesus walks into that scene and it says in verse 45, he entered the temple. He began to drive out those that were selling, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a place called a robber's den, a place where robbers come and hide and camp out. And so here's these priests, here's these religious people who had two jobs. The job of a priest was sort of twofold. In one way, the priest faced us, the people, and he represented God to the people. And then another way, he would turn around and he would make intercession, almost representing us, the people, to God. And so instead of helping people connect with God, instead of helping people touch the presence of God, they started ripping people off. And Jesus says, this has to change. This has to change because it's not a way to make money. It's not a way to say, I'm better than you. Everybody stay out. In fact, here's what the Bible says. If you want to write this down in Romans chapter 10, just write down Romans 10, one through 10. It's a weighty chapter. It's very, it's very detailed, but here's what it teaches us. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus paid for my sin. He paid for your sin. He paid for the sins of the world. 
And here's what uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says. We don't need another sacrifice. We don't need some guy from the descendant of, we don't need some earthly kind of guy to be our representative before God anymore. We don't need to come to some person and say, Hey, can you represent me to God and help God rep, you know, be related to me? Instead, here's what Hebrews chapter 10 teaches is that Jesus became the sacrifice. He became our high priest. He became the one that we go. So we don't need to go to a man. We don't need to go to, to a person. We don't need somebody to go between us that it, when you come to know Christ personally, the high priest, he's the high priest. He steps out of heaven and he steps into our heart. And when he steps into our heart, he brings total forgiveness, total forgiveness. And what I've found is a lot of times that sounds good. We're like, yes, he can forgive people. But here's what I found. I don't know if you struggle with this or not, but I I have. Is that we think God can forgive everybody else, but me. I don't know if you've ever felt that. But sometimes I've gotten up and I've preached. I've been like, there's hope. There's there's healing. Easter's a time of celebration. It's it's a time of new life. And what I found is a lot of times I'll talk about forgiveness to other people. And then inside of me, I will still feel that way. And here's what I want to say to every single one of us. If you know Christ personally, you have total forgiveness. Every sin you've ever done against God, against yourself, against others, it's totally forgiven. But it doesn't stop there. Number two, not only does he bring total forgiveness, but number two, he brings complete righteousness. He brings complete righteousness. See, if you were to rewind, it says in verse 39, the Pharisees. So let me pick on the Pharisees just for a second. Uh, the Pharisees, uh, I think, were good people. I think I'm, I'm going to meet some Pharisees in heaven, so I want to make sure that I don't go off on them too much here today. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to get to heaven and a bunch of Pharisees gang up on me. Hey, why'd you, you know what I'm saying? I thought that'd be funnier than it was, but anyway, that was awkward. I was just feeling that bombs. But I, I think the Pharisees were pretty good, but somewhere along the way, they got focused on the wrong thing. You get what I'm saying with that? Sometimes we start out with good intentions in our own lives, and somewhere along the way we forget the goal. And when you forget the goal, you start doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And so here's what happened for the Pharisees. God, in the book of Exodus, uh, gave the Ten Commandments. He gave what we call the law. The Ten Commandments is called by a lot of different names. The Ten Commandments, the law of God. Uh, and so he gave the Ten Commandments. And so here's what the Pharisees did. As religious leaders, the Pharisees said, hey, we don't want to break any of those ten We don't want to break the Ten Commandments. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to comb the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. The Ten Commandments is called the law, but sometimes the first five books of the Old Testament is also called the law. It was written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so here's what the Pharisees did. They started combing throughout those first five books of the Bible and they begin to pull out every single thing that could be a rule. I think they were probably analytical people. They were list kind of people. And so they, they come throughout those first five books. And you know what they came up with? They didn't just come up with 10 laws. They came up with 613 laws. Isn't that awesome? Sign me up, right? And so here's what happens. Again, they started out with this positive mentality. We don't want to break the 10, so we're going to enforce 613 so that we never get close to the 10. 
We're going to put this boundary. We're going to put margin. And margin is positive, but but instead of helping people get close to God, guess what they did? They kept people farther away. And what began to happen is they forgot the purpose of the law. And so there was a group of them that began to think, well, the way that I'm made right before God is I keep 613 rules. I keep 613 codes. I keep this religion. And they forgot the relationship. Well, here's what the Bible says. And if you want to write this down, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Here's what Romans chapter 3 says. The law, the Ten Commandments, and even the 613, they weren't given to make us right before God. In other words, God's not up in heaven saying, check, 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 you kept all 613, or he doesn't even say, hey, you kept all 10 because we've all blown it. Here's what Romans 3 says, the law was given to show us that we have sin in our life. Now, for some of you, that sounds obvious, but honestly, in our culture, not a lot of people like to believe that. We think we're pretty good. Hey, I've got it together. Hey, I dressed up for church. I sang the songs. I attended since I was four years old. And here's what the Bible teaches. It's not about rules. It's not about codes. It's not about, it's great. It's great to be a good person, but that's not what makes you right before God. What Romans 3 says is the law shows us that we're all sinners. Why does it do that? So that we know we need a Savior. So that we know we need a Savior. And so here's what we find. When Jesus steps into life, he brings total forgiveness. But then number two, he brings complete righteousness, which means, and and, and just in a nutshell, is that he makes us right before the Father. He makes us right before the Father. He paid the penalty for our sin and he steps out of heaven and he steps into our heart. He takes up residence inside of us and his presence brings righteousness. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're not going to, I'd be the first to admit I'm not perfect. I've got enough issues in my life. I I got drama, right? Uh, I said in the first service, I got enough issues that I need my own magazine stand. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I'd be the first to admit that joke went a little better. Thank you very much. I'm trying to redeem myself here, so thanks for playing along. So I I would be the first to admit to say I'm not perfect. But what it does mean is that when God looks down, he doesn't see my report card with all F's because of my sin. That when Jesus comes to step into my life, it's almost like he removes my report card of F's and he replaces it with the report card of Jesus. And so he now sees me through the payment of his son. That's what makes us right with God. That's what restores that relationship with God. And I'm telling you, if you're putting your hope in something else, it just doesn't work. So number one, he brings total forgiveness. Number two, he brings complete righteousness. And I'll just give you this in a nutshell. Number three, he gives us a new power. He gives us a new power. See, the Pharisees, they're living out of their own strength, out of their own ability. The Sadducees, they're, they're, they're trying to, to live this life their own way without the help of God. He looks at Bobby's life and he's like, Bobby, you can't do this on your, he looks at all of our lives and he says, look, if you try to live this life yourself out of your strength without the help of God, guess what? It's just not going to work. Religion says, hey, just keep the rules, keep the codes, do it out of your own strength. And I'm telling you, there's some people here in our church that are just tired. You're just worn out. You're trying to produce something that can only be produced by God himself. He gives us new power. If you know what happens the rest of this week, you know what happens? Jesus, uh, 
uh, ha- uh, celebrates Passover with his disciples on Thursday night. He's betrayed. Friday, he's run through sham trials. He's beaten. He's flogged. He, he's a crown of thorns shoved down on his head. He's placed on the cross. Three days later, he beats death and has resurrection life. He shows up to his disciples over the next few days. They don't really understand what's going on. So they're like, Jesus, Jesus, what, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to overthrow the government? Are you going to sit on the throne? What are you going to do? And they still didn't really grasp this whole thing. And so Jesus turns to them and says, here's what I'm going to tell you. You're going to receive power. Not power like they're thinking of. We're going to overthrow the government, but power to talk about Jesus to the people around you. Power to pull light out of darkness. Power to, for some of them, to heal. Power to testify about him. Power to withstand the tough times. And literally power to change the world. If you fast forward to the book of Acts in chapter 18, when, or maybe it's 17, when they're walking through the cities, people see Paul and they say, these men who have turned their world upside down have come here also. They had a brand new power to live by. And so do you, and so do I. Anytime Jesus shows up, things change. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is there evidence of change in your life? If you were to do an x-ray on your heart, is there evidence of change? I'm not asking, are you perfect? Because none of us are perfect. But what I'm asking is, has there ever been a moment that your heart's changed? Because wherever Jesus shows up, things change. And maybe if you're like me, you've grown up and become a little bit like a Pharisee at times. And what I would say is don't hang your hat on keeping some rules. Don't hang your hat on keeping some code. Ask yourself, do you have a relationship? What does that mean? Have your sins ever been forgiven? Have you ever stopped and asked Jesus to to say, I can't do this myself, but I know that you can. Would you save me? And are you experiencing his power, his life today? And if you haven't, today, would you do that? Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. All across this room as we pray, um, there are a lot of us in this room that you know Christ personally. Would you thank him? Would you take these moments just like, Pastor Hector uh, encouraged us to do on the front end just to say thank you. In your head and your heart, would you just thank him? Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for righteousness. Thank you that your presence brings power in my life. Just thank him. If you're a Christian, man, this is such a reminder to us to just say thank you because we didn't deserve it. I know I didn't. We didn't deserve it. And maybe this morning, your heart's never been changed. Maybe you're in the, your first time here, first time in a long time, or maybe you've been to church your whole life, but you've never been changed. Would you in your head and your heart just pray and just say something to the effect, dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner separated from you. I know I'm not righteous. I know that you are. And as best as I know how, I ask you to forgive me 
and save me. Help me to live for you. Just ask him that. That's the greatest thing that could happen. In a moment, I'm going to finish praying. We're just going to stand and worship just for a few minutes. I'm going to invite you to stay in this moment and just say thank you. This morning, if you prayed for the very first time for Jesus to change your heart, I'd love to get to shake your hand and meet you. Right after the service is over, I'm going to hang out for a few minutes in the hospitality room just out the side door. If this is your first time here or maybe you prayed that prayer for the very first time, I'd love for you just to stop by and say hello. I'd love to get to just just say a blessing to you and, and, and help you know what some next steps might be for you. Father, all across this room, we say thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for righteousness. Thank you for your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's just, let's just worship him.